Good morning. Welcome, and just to reiterate what Pastor Chip said, um, last week was a great week, and we know it was a great week um, because a lot of people put forth a lot of time and energy into making it happen, and so if you were on a committee or you served in any place last week uh, to help make that a success, just thank you uh, for the time and effort you put in. Uh, Coming from somebody who's only been a part of this body of of believers for just a few years, um, it it was cool to me to see, just to hear from those who have been here before me and, and to just kind of just see all the things that, that God has done in our church in the past uh, and to, to have others help and make that a possibility. Thank you uh, for that. We had about uh, right around 500 people here last week. Uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't include the bees that were outside. Uh, saw the, I couldn't see who it was. I saw somebody phantom way in the video. Yeah, we were, we were having fun with that, I'm sure. Um, but no, we, we really did appreciate last week. Uh, the other thing I wanted to, to bring up before I jump into the message is uh, the, uh, the elephant in the room, or maybe not the elephant is the right word, the aisle in the room. Um, some of you came in to sit down in your chair, and you noticed it wasn't there this morning. Um, we, uh, we, have a, we have an aisle that goes through the middle now. Uh, basically, we're trying an experiment for the next few weeks, and we want to just kind of see if this gives people more opportunity, more places to stand and talk, rather than kind of standing in between rows. And, and, and also, we've, we've had the same sanctuary set up for a while, and we just wanted to try something different. So uh, if, you, if you don't like it, uh, you can find Pastor Chip's contact information in the bulletin, and uh, you can let him know about that. <laughs> um, this morning, we're going to start a new series, uh, and it's called Questions That Jesus Asks. And uh, during this series, uh, we're going to consider questions. Questions are a very powerful tool in, our, uh, in, in the way we communicate, in our language, in other languages. People use questions uh, for, a lot of different, for, for a lot of different reasons, uh, to convey different things. Uh, when, you go all, when you look all the way back at the ancient philosophers, we're talking Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all those guys, they used questions— uh, to prod people to go deeper, to think deeper, to think differently uh, uh, about, about life, about their circumstance. Whoever has taken a, uh, a uh, philosophy class in either high school or college and got that fun question, what is a chair? Right? They're not asking that just simply for you to say, well, it's something you sit on. They're, you know, they're prodding you to, to think about that chair. Why do you know it's a chair? Who has told you it was a chair? How do you know that that is what, that is what a chair is supposed to look like? And the just questions from that one simple question just go deeper and deeper and deeper. And that was their goal. They wanted to use those questions to have people think differently and to think deeper about things. And so that's one way questions are used. Uh, sometimes questions are just simply for information. You are simply wanting to find out directions to somewhere or how long it takes for this to do this or, uh, you know, what temperature you should set the oven at for this or whatever. Simple questions uh, can, are, are used to just go after simple information. And, and we need those uh, in, in our lives. We need those uh, as we go throughout our day and, and, and weeks to, to figure out just the, the most basic things of life. Quest, those types of questions are necessary. But then we also, uh, we have questions that are used to teach, right? We, we, uh, we use questions to uh, challenge uh, people's, people's uh, 
ways of thinking, uh, kind of like the, the, the philosophers did with, uh, with their questions and that question about the chair. We don't just want you to, to, to answer this surface level, right? Every math teacher that's ever asked their students to show their work, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I had a teacher in high school, uh, and I'm getting ready to talk about him anyway, but one thing he always did for us, he'd give us the answers ahead of time. He didn't really want the answers. He wanted us to show how we got to there. So we already had questions that were already answered to us, uh, and, and we had to show work. And so questions are used to teach us and, and to, to have us work through things in our brains. And questions are also used to judge, right? Teachers give tests. That same teacher that gave us the answers to the test, uh, I remember he was a first-year teacher my freshman year in high school, and I had him for Algebra 1-2, and he was a... Uh, Air Force drill instructor that had retired and decided he wanted to teach. And I was a part of his first class, and I was one of the first students that he gave a test to. And in that, that, that particular class that day, that first test, the highest grade in the entire class was a C. Every question was a trick question. Drove us all nuts. And, and I think I was scarred from that throughout the rest of my, my time in high school and college, thinking every question on every test, there's a trick here somewhere and I'm missing it, right? But we use questions to judge. That's, tests, that's what tests are for. That's why we take them as much as some of us struggle with tests or struggle with them. We need those to help us figure out where we are, how, how much we do know. And so questions are used also to judge. But then questions can also be used to gain trust and intimacy. I want you all to think, uh, those of you who are married or have ever been out on a date, think about your first date. And you're sitting there at the table and you're asking what are perceived to be just the surface level informational questions, right? You're like, who are your parents? What do they do? What do you want to do after you like graduate high school or college? What do you want to do? What, 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 what do you, if you have a job, what job do you do? Like all those things. But as we answer those simple, seemingly simple surface level questions, what's growing there is a relationship. And so those questions are used to gain the trust of that person, are used to gain intimacy uh, in, in that relationship. And so questions have the, the ability, the power to do that. We're going to look at a few quotes uh, throughout this series, and one of them is, the ability to ask the right question is more than half the battle of finding the answer. Uh, who has like, gone through a situation and found out if they just would have asked one question differently at the very beginning, the process would have been way more simple? or you wouldn't have had to go through a headache, or you wouldn't have to, to deal with that. If you just would have asked a different question, the right question, at the very beginning of the process. All right? I think every one of us can probably say that. So the right questions matter. Uh, questions, uh, good questions inform. Great questions transform. Uh, this, is a, this is a quote that's used a lot when we talk about questions or when you search for it. Um, Ken Coleman was the announcer for the Red Sox in the 60s. But this has is, this is, uh, been used by John Maxwell and other leadership people as they talk about it's not, it's, it's not just important to ask questions, that's important, but people spend a lot of money in business trying to figure out the, uh, the great questions that can transform a business or the great questions that can even transform your life. Have you ever had that teacher or that person that asked the, that question just specifically the right way so that all of a sudden the light bulb came on? Right? Everybody probably has been there too at one point in their life. John Maxwell says this, good leaders ask great questions that inspire others to dream more, to think more, to learn more, to do more, and to become more. And it should be no uh, surprise to us that Jesus 
understood this and understood the value of questions. Jesus, during his ministry, asks 307 questions. He's asked 198 questions, and he answers only eight of those questions directly. Jesus understood the importance and the use of questions. And some of them, some of them uh, would, would seem silly, like when, when Peter gets out of the boat and he walks on the water and he starts to, and he starts to sink, and Jesus looks at him and says, why do you doubt? Well, I was walking on water. <laughs> you know, like that would make sense. Some of the questions are like that, but then, but then some of the questions are a lot deeper than that. Who do you say I am? Right? Jesus uses questions in a lot of different con- contexts, in a lot of different ways, but he only answers eight directly. If you go to Jesus with a question, it's 40 times more likely that you're going to get another question back than you are to get a straight answer. That's comforting, isn't it? Because <laughs> a lot of times we go to Jesus and we hope that Jesus is the answer man, right? We go to Jesus and we're struggling with something and we need an answer. And so often, just like the people that were coming to him with questions uh, were responded to by Jesus, we get a question back. And it's usually a question that probes us to go deeper, to think about ourselves, to think about the situation, to think about ways in which um, God could, could use us to bring about a different outcome. Jesus understood questions. Um, a theology professor uh, was wrapping up his whole career as a professor. And he was standing in front of his, his large lecture hall full of students, and he finishes this lecture, and the students knew it was his last one. And so when he wrapped it up, they stood up. Everybody was applauding for him, and, and he was just collecting his notes and putting them in his briefcase just like he had always done. And he walked towards the door. When he got to the door, he stopped, and he turned to them, and he said this, Just remember, Jesus is the question to all of your answers. Jesus asked a lot of questions, and he was very good at using them very strategically. And so we're going to look at that throughout this series. And what we want you guys to know is that when Jesus asks a question, he is ready to change your life. The people in Scripture that Jesus asks his questions to, he is ready to do something in them. Some of them that receive the question from Jesus, they miss it. It goes over their head, they, they, or they don't respond, or they don't want to respond. But the people that hear Jesus, and the people that respond to his questions, Jesus changes their lives. And so we're going to look at four questions throughout this series. Uh, we, were, we decided to be kind to you. We decided not to go through all 307. Uh, we're going to go through four questions. These are not the best questions. These are not the only questions. These are not the questions that we feel like... Uh, you know, are the, are the biggest uh, ideas and things that Jesus has. These questions are simply ones that we felt like do a good job of conveying what we're, what we're communicating here about Jesus and his questions. And so this morning, the question that we're going to look at comes from John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. And uh, this morning, I am, I am going to read this uh, for you and invite you to read along with me, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into it after we conclude. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people had gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, 
and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down to write on the ground. At this, those who heard began uh, to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. To set this all up for you, uh, Jesus is in the temple for a specific purpose. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, if you know about uh, the Feast of Tabernacles at all, um, you're already kind of aware of what's going on. If not, um, the Feast of Tabernacles was a Jewish feast that happened every year that they used to remember the fact that Jesus provided for the people while they were in the wilderness. Jesus provided for the Israelites uh, after they had, they had doubted God, doubted his ability to lead them into the land, and they were put, pushed back into the wilderness for 40 years. And God provided food for them. And God provided uh, things for them to survive. And so they want, they want to have this feast every year to kind of com uh, commemorate, there we go, commemorate what God did for them. And so uh, during this eight-day festival, they would start out day one and day eight were days of rest. Right? Everybody who's ever gone to a working conference of any kind would appreciate if the first and the last day were days for you to take a break, right? But this is how they have this set up. So they've got this set up. The, uh, everybody during this whole time, they're staying in like makeshift huts in Jerusalem. They leave their house. They live in makeshift huts because that's what they lived in in the desert. They take this stuff very seriously. They want to reenact this as much as they possibly can. So everybody's there, and what makes this something significant is that this is not just a feast that's for Jewish people only. They actually invite Gentiles in the region to come in and participate in this with them because they want everybody uh, that can to, to hear about God's provision for them. And so uh, the, Jesus is standing there in the court, and, and what he's doing when, when the Pharisees approach him is he's teaching. Now, during the, during the day one and day eight, uh, in the middle— people would, first off, they would feast. That's in the name. That's what they do. They eat food. They gather together. They fellowship. They eat food. But then they also have times of worship, and then they also have times of teaching. And it's kind of like all of the, all of the rabbis in the area would come, and they would set up a, a little spot in one of the corners of the temple and, and in the courts, and people would come and sit down just to listen to what the rabbi would have to say or, or teach throughout that week. And so Jesus is there, he's in the, in the court of the temple, and people are, are surrounding him and listening to him teach, when all of a sudden the Pharisees approach Jesus, and they have the best plan that they can come up with. And they're really happy with this plan. They're going to trap Jesus. They've been trying to trap Jesus for a while. Jesus has made them mad. Jesus has taken followers away from them. They don't understand why people would want to go and listen to, uh, to this man from Galilee when they could listen to people who have gone through the proper channels and earned the proper respect uh, that, that, that people would just forego all that and just go and listen to this guy. And they're pretty upset about what he's doing. They're pretty upset about things that he's saying, accusations that he's making about other people, about them. 
and also things that he's saying about about himself. And they are not happy with him, and they want Jesus uh, done with. They want him. They want to catch him in some way. He's he's he talks so uh, eloquent eloquently uh, and and uses uh, so much thought into what he says. They want to trap him in his own words. And they think that this is the perfect spot to do it. Crowds are gathered into the temple for this feast, and they just know that if they can trap Jesus here, then they can, that this can go a long way into them helping to build a case against Jesus to get rid of him. And so they find Jesus there in the court, and they've set this trap up so perfectly, uh, they, they have caught this woman in the act of adultery. Uh, most likely this was staged. Now, not staged as in the woman did not commit adultery. They, they definitely knew that she committed adultery, but they approached Jesus with just the woman. When you look at the, ba- the scriptural basis for what they're talking about here, it's found in Leviticus 20.10. It says, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. This is the Mosaic law. This is the things that they are following as a society, as a group of people. And uh, they only approach Jesus, though, with the woman. And it's more than likely that this woman was caught in the act. Somehow they knew, um, probably through uh, the fact that they knew the guy. Uh, they set all this up. They got the woman. They got her in the act. So she, they, are, they brought her to Jesus wearing exactly or not wearing exactly what she was brought her into the temple court, placed her in front of Jesus with stones in hand. And then this is when they throw out the trap. They use this dilemma on Jesus. How can God be just, yet merciful and full of grace? Isaiah 61.8 says, For I, the Lord, love justice. Amos 3.2 says, therefore I will punish you for all of your sins. But then we have Psalm 103 verses 1 through 5. Praise the Lord my soul, all of my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord my soul and forget not all his benefits who forgives all of your sins and who heals all of your diseases, who redeems you, uh, redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Jesus has come, and he has claimed that he's not there to remove any part of the law. So if Jesus then tells these men, you know what? We need to, we need to stop. We need to have compassion on this woman. Then Jesus is going against the law, and then they've got him. They've, they've got Jesus trapped because Jesus said he wasn't here to remove any part of the law, and all of a sudden, boom, here he is removing parts of the law in this moment. So Jesus is then not, not only a lawbreaker, uh, but he's also lying about what, uh, what he's been saying. The other part of this is if Jesus says, you know what? Go ahead and stone her. That's what the law says. That's what we should do. Then they also have Jesus trapped because Jesus has made this claim to be a friend of sinners. He's gone to their houses. He's gone to eat with them. He's gone to fellowship with them. He says, I'm not here for the, the healthy, but I'm here for the sick. And if Jesus 
then in this moment decides to just stone somebody that he's claimed to be here for, then he's really not that kind guy that he says he is. And then they've got him trapped on that side. Jesus is apparently in a very tight spot. But Jesus, like only Jesus can do, flips the trap. Jesus is given one of two ways out, and he finds a third way. And that is just Jesus. That is, that is the coolness factor of Jesus, is that he has the ability to do this. And why? Because he understands the importance and value of a question. Now, the, que- what he, what, the way he flips the trap before he, he gives them, or gives this woman the question, uh, he says, okay, and after he stoops down, he writes on the ground, they keep asking him what to do with this woman. He stands up and he says, okay, if any of you haven't sinned, you guys go ahead and throw the first stone. I have often wondered what would have happened if there was some young Pharisee in that group that thought, okay, and thought they were good enough and just chucked it at that moment. What would Jesus have done? But here's the thing. Jesus knew the heart of each and every guy that was in that mob. Just a few chapters earlier, he calls them all, the the group that brought this woman to him, he calls them all adulterers. Why? Because he said, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in her heart. So he's actually charged this whole mob, this whole group of people, with the exact thing that they're they're accusing this woman of. And they know it. And as Jesus bends down again to write in the dirt, slowly the, drop, the, the rocks drop to the ground. And it says it started with the oldest and it went down to the youngest and they slowly all leave. And because of this, there are some theologians that believe that Jesus was writing the names of each one of those, peop- uh, of each one of those men and the sins that they had committed next to him. And they said the oldest would probably have left first because they had a longer rap sheet. But regardless of whatever Jesus is writing in the dirt, that can't even be proven. Regardless, as the rocks fall to the ground without seemingly justice, the men walk away. And all that's left in that moment, after the last rock drops and after the last person walks away, is Jesus, in the midst of this crowd, is Jesus and this woman. Now this woman most likely is naked, most likely is terrified, most likely uh, feels used, abused, scared for her life. Because here's the thing, there's still one person left. Jesus is still standing there. Jesus is still capable of picking up a rock and throwing it. But here's the thing. The one person who could have thrown the stone didn't. Possibly the biggest slap in, this fa- in, in the face of this woman isn't, isn't that she's standing in the courtyard of the temple in the state that she's in. It's that they didn't really care about her. They didn't. They just came to trap Jesus. They didn't care about this woman. If they really would have cared about what she did, they would have got her the guy that she was doing adultery with, and they would have brought him out in the street right there, and they would have killed him. She would never even have made it to the temple. 
And here's the thing. When we talk about Jesus and asking good questions and, and the questions that Jesus asks and the ability that he has to take a question and do something powerful and to change somebody's life, when we're talking about those questions, there's one thing that, that in this story that we get revealed about the enemy and how he uses questions. And it's, and it's right here in this passage. In verse 6, it says, The Pharisees, they were using this question as a trap. Satan wants to use questions much differently than Jesus wants to use questions. He wants to trap us. He wants us to get so paralyzed, so caught in our sin, that that's all we can see, and we can't see the help that's standing right in front of us. He sees the person, and he sees the sin. But then, after all of that, we see the question that Jesus asks the woman. Woman, where are they? Who condemns you? She responds, nobody. Jesus says, well, neither do I. See, this is the thing about Jesus. Jesus sees fully and yet loves completely. This is the third way out of that dilemma that the Pharisees put on Jesus. They said, you either have to be just or you have to love, but you can't do both. And Jesus says, why not? See, there's some important things here that we need to, to understand about what Jesus is doing. Jesus, not, by not condemning her, does not believe that she is innocent. We get that from the very end of that where he says, go and leave your life of sin. Jesus isn't saying, okay, you know, all is well, uh, saved your life, you know, you're good to go. Not, he, he doesn't just not acknowledge the fact that she was indeed caught in the act of adultery. He says, this life you're living, it needs to end. And so he acknowledges the fact that she's guilty, but he still doesn't condemn her for it. Okay? The next thing that we need to understand is that by not condemning, uh, that should not be confused with tolerance. I think often in the church, uh, especially, we view if we let something go, then that means we're being tolerant of it. If we allow things, I, I, I heard a story uh, from, a, from a friend who, who's at a, a Nazarene church in some other part of the country, and, and they said that their church was really struggling with the idea of having um, a baby shower for an unwed mother. Because that baby was born in wedlock, or outside of wedlock. And he said, where do we start to show love? They didn't want to honor the fact that that woman had done that thing, but they said, you know what? It's not the baby's fault. And we can still be loving to this woman. We can still be loving to her family. We can still support her. And that's what Jesus is saying here to this woman. Yeah, she, she's messed up. And as Jesus pointed out to the Pharisees, who hasn't? Just because we show love doesn't mean we're being tolerant of their behavior. And it's really good for us as the church to be reminded of that. There are things that happen that when we show love in the midst of those things, we're not condoning what's happening. We're not being tolerant of what's going on. 
but we can still show love. We're called by Jesus to still show love. And the last thing, um, Jesus did not lecture her and did not use this as a teachable moment. And as I wrote that, I realized he really did use it as a teachable moment, but not the teachable moment that we were all thinking. It's not the teachable moment we were going for here. Jesus is, is using this moment um, not to necessarily teach her, but us. There's so often when people mess up and we line up to let them know that they screwed up. You know, parents, <laughs> we do this with kids, right? All the time. We, we wait for them to mess up and then we use that as the example. And at times, there's, that's completely the way to handle situations. But in the moment, when somebody's emotionally wrecked and damaged, it's not the moment. It's not the teachable moment. This woman is standing in the middle of a courtyard, partially or no, no clothing whatsoever, hurting and afraid for her life. And Jesus, in that moment, shows compassion and love. And he doesn't stand there and say, well, you know what? If you wouldn't have done this with that guy in the first place, you wouldn't be here right now. And he avoids that because love, he sees the person and not the sin. He chooses love. He, cho he chooses mercy. See, Jesus is the perfect balance of justice and mercy. This morning, uh, as, we, as we come to a close and as we consider this statement again, Jesus sees fully and yet loves completely. I just wonder if there's some people that are here this morning that are like this woman. They're afraid of the mob. They're afraid of, they're afraid of what would happen if my sin was laid bare for all to see. What would happen if people really knew what I did? And maybe even, even more... Um, deeper than that we're afraid that Jesus is going to pick up the stone too and join them when Jesus is standing there with that woman I have to imagine that as she is is quivering and afraid that Jesus is looking at that woman and is thinking about the fact that you know what in just a short matter of time that adultery that was just committed, your life of sin, I'm going to take that and I'm going to nail it to a tree. And it's going to be, it's going to be gone forever. Jesus wants us to understand that he doesn't see adulterous. He doesn't see greedy. He doesn't see anger. He doesn't see frustration. He doesn't see liar. He sees a child of his that's struggling, that's hurting, that's, that's quivering from fear, who's listened to the wrong question from the wrong person. They feel trapped. They feel isolated. As a youth pastor, every time that I hear that there's a student somewhere that took their life out of depression, out of anxiety, I know it's because they've listened to that question, the wrong question. They've listened to the trap. They've, 
they've become so just concealed on what they've done wrong or what other people have done wrong to them that they can't see anything else. And Jesus wants us to know that he sees us completely. He doesn't just see the sin. He doesn't just see the mistakes. He doesn't just see where we've fallen short. He sees us and he loves us and he shows us mercy. He's the perfect balance. He's the answer to the dilemma. When you're asked who it is that condemns you, we can respond the same way as that woman did. Nobody. Because we, we have a God who took that sin and nailed it to a tree and we don't have to think about it anymore. This morning, maybe you're feeling like that. Maybe you need to understand that there's a God who loves you and that can look past the sin in your life and can look past the mistakes that you made. But some of you here this morning are like, you know what? God's already done that for me. I can sit here this morning with a smile on my face because I know that even though I did A, B, and C on the awful list, that Jesus took that away from me. Jesus forgave me of that. I don't have to carry that around anymore. Jesus has already proven to me that he is that perfect balance of love, mercy, and justice. Then we have reasons to celebrate. And this morning, we're going to stand and sing here in just a moment. And regardless of whatever side of that argument or that coin that you're on, whether you're the person walking around with the guilt and the shame right now, or you're the person that's walking around lighter because Jesus has taken it from you. We can say this morning with enthusiasm that God is good and that God is love and God is justice and God is mercy. It doesn't have to be one or the other. This morning, let's stand and let's sing how good God is one more time.
God that's so good. We thank you that you're a God who, while we were still sinners, came and died for us. And when you had the opportunity to throw a rock, you dropped it and you showed love and you showed grace and mercy and forgiveness. Dear God, if there's anybody in this room that hasn't experienced that today, dear God, I pray that you would you would work a miracle in their life. You would help them to be able to hear that. You don't see the sin, you see the person. Dear God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for being a God who, who sees us completely. Dear God, I pray that you would go with us. I pray that you would be with everyone that we interact with this week. And if we have the opportunity to share how good God is, Help us to do so. Dear God, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming. You are dismissed.